Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray. At Fortune, we do a lot of lists. I mean, the Fortune 500 list is the classic. It's been around for more than 50 years. It measures companies by size. We do lists that measure companies by how fast they're growing, by how well they treat their employees, by whether they're admired by uh, their colleagues, all kinds of measurements lists. But my favorite list is one that started five years ago, the Change the World list. And we're fortunate today to have the meister of that list, the man who makes the magic happen, Fortune Editor-in-Chief Cliff Leaf. Cliff, thanks for, thanks for being with us on Leadership Next. Thank you for, for having me. And I have to say that it's my favorite list, too. You know, we put out, the edit team puts out just so many lists, including the ones you mentioned. But this one really just drives to the soul of business today, not just the soul of fortune, but, but really what I think has become uh, the driving factor in successful businesses. So, so tell us what it is. So it's doing well by doing good. This idea that the business imperative is aligned with some higher meaning, some higher goal. So what we look for is to highlight companies that are solving some societal problem or meeting some key unmet need in society as part of their core operating business. So not something they do with their foundation or their marketing arm or some sides hustle, but but really as this is what they do. And Cliff, are, are you trying to distinguish good companies from bad companies? No. You know, we have no magical weighing machine. And so we really only focus on an individual challenge. So let's say they're trying to reduce their environmental footprint. We'll look specifically at that and see how their business is driving that goal. We're looking for companies that can find new customer bases for uh, to expand into, or maybe it's helping them shore up a supply line, but something really core to their business. And I've seen in your coverage, there's more and more evidence that the people who were doing these things are also doing well for their shareholders, that they're leading indicators of a good return. Yeah. In fact, over the last two years, the, the companies on our list have beaten both the S&P 500 and the MSCI World Index. And this is a global list. Uh, this year's companies, for example, there are 28 in the U.S. and Canada, I think seven or eight in Europe, 10 in, the, in Asia and the Middle East, and three each in Africa and Latin America. So it's a, it's a really global list. So, Cliff, you've been doing this. This is the list number six. Right. Are you seeing an increasing trend among companies to focus on this kind of positive social impact? You know, that's a great question. When we began this list, we set out to pick 50 companies that were changing the world. And we thought, how are we ever going to do this? You know, are we really going to find 50 companies? <laughs> and that first list, it was very exciting, you know, as we, we worked through it and tried to have as, as uh, objective measures as we could on their impact and and how core it was to their business. And we did it. And then each year, it started to get actually a little easier and easier as we started to dive into, uh, you know, looking at ways, you know, novel ways in which companies were meeting societal challenges. And so that really has been a, a labor of love as we've discovered more and more companies fulfilling this promise. 
So one of the companies on the list is AB InBev, the world's largest brewer. And we're lucky today to have the CEO of that company with us on Leadership Next, Carlos Brito. We're going to be talking to him in a minute. But before we do, Cliff, why did he make the list? <laughs> well, there are a couple of things that AB InBev does. It uses weather data and, and these sensors and satellites and drones and all sorts of very sophisticated technology to help you know, thousands of farmers, um, smallholder farmers, avoid threats to their crops. And that crop in particular is the barley that AB InBev needs to make the beer that we all love, right? So in addition to that, they really work on the local level to brew um, beer that from local ingredients, local feedstocks like cassava in some areas in Brazil. Uh, and that's key to the local economy and making sure that there is a vibrant business in that area. So, Brito, the part of this that we focused on in the list was what you're calling your uh, Smart Barley Project. And what I like about this is that you're really helping your farmers around the world, you're really helping the environment, and you're really helping your business all at the same time. Can you talk about that? So, we, we brew 95% of what we sell locally, different than other companies that have a very long supply chain. Our supply chain is local. So we, we get the water locally, we buy from local farmers our raw materials, we brew the beer locally, we sell to consumers locally, and we hire our colleagues locally. So we're very connected to communities and to farmers and also to our retailers. So in terms of our farmers, to your question, we have a program that's called Smart Barley in that we support 20,000 farmers around the world in things like uh, crop management, weather information, seed variety, so seeds that are more adapted to that uh, microclimate or soil that they have. So all of that trying to get the farmers to have better yields. Uh, so by supporting them to have better yields, we also allow them to have those yields with less of an impact on natural resources. So we're very proud of that program. That's one of the programs yeah. we have with farmers. We have others. And we can talk about some of the others, but it's a great program to explore what we talk about a lot on this podcast, which is this whole notion of stakeholder capitalism. And one of the things that people have, have raised is, you know, we know how to measure returns to shareholders. And by the way, AB InBev does a pretty good job on that one. But how do you measure the benefits to the community? How do you measure the benefits to the environment? And how do you balance the three? How do you do that at AB InBev? Well, Alan, we, we're very different as a business than, for example, a smartphone company or manufacturer because a smartphone is manufactured in two or three countries in Asia and sold in 200 countries around the world. We produce 95% of what we brew and sell locally. So we're very tied to communities. So for us, the connection is immediate. That's what I like about our sustainability program because it's all about helping, helping our communities where we serve, where we operate, thrive and be more balanced and have a more sound environment and better water quality and less trash because we use returnable packaging. So as you do that, not only our communities get to a better place, our colleagues that live in the community will also benefit from that, our consumers as well, but we'll be seen uh, from a community standpoint 
as somebody who's trying to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. It's a really great point. I mean, some commentators, uh, Rick Wartsman wrote a good book on this, said part of what happened to American capitalism is that it moved away from its connection to the community. But you say for AB InBev, that's remained a tight connection. It does because we're a local company. We have a global footprint, but we act locally in that we produce and sell locally. So we're very connected to communities. For example, in a country in Africa like Sudan, that's going through a, you know, a very tough time, civil war and everything. We had to close our brewery there and our colleagues lost their jobs and we lost our business. If you're talking about a smartphone manufacturer, if there is a civil war in a country, all they do is they, you know, supply that country from a neighbor country. They don't have assets there. They don't have people employed there. They don't have a business there that uh, cannot be replaced. We are totally connected to how that community does. If the community does well, we tend to do well. I was also impressed by uh, some of the work you did with the pubs and the communities that you worked with during the pandemic. First of all, how did pandemic change beer consumption? But then what did you do to help your customers address that? Yeah, this year has been for everybody a very different year. We had to adapt very fast to what the pandemic brought us. And one of the things that uh, was triggered by the pandemic was that 30% of our sales that's done through bars, restaurants, pubs, sports venues, music venues, tourism in general, all this thing got shut down. Consumers, of course, moved occasions from restaurants and pubs and bars to in-home occasions. So there was a shift in our supply chain to different packs, different channels, grocery stores, more supermarket sales. It didn't compensate, for sure not, uh, what we lost in bars and restaurants. But it did compensate a little bit. So overall, our volume went down. We service 6 million retailers around the world, Alan. And most of them are small and medium-sized companies. And most of the small companies led by women. So we had to help them weather and bridge the storm. And the way we did it was uh, twofold. First, by using technology to connect consumers that were locked in their homes and bars that were shut down. But one needed the other. So we, we in the Americas, for example, we have technology, we have apps that connect consumers and retailers so they could do takeouts and deliveries. So that's the first thing we did. And the second thing we did with pubs is that you could help your favorite pub or restaurant to weather the storm during the lockdown period by buying a voucher to which we would match one to one and redeem that voucher when the pub would reopen. But in the meantime, giving the pub the much-needed cash flow for the pub to make ends meet during the lockdown period. How did that work? It worked really well. Consumers enjoyed because they want their pubs to come back after the lockdown, and now the pubs are coming back. And we have other programs. For example, in the Americas, in Brazil, for example, we teamed up with other CPG companies, consumer goods companies, to help finance the way back for those small and medium-sized retailers that will need that first inventory that we need some financing, we need credit terms, we need some investment on our side to help them get back to business. So because, again, this is all one part of one big ecosystem. Communities need the retailers because that's where they buy their everyday needs. Retailers are what keeps family of those retailers in business and alive. And we need those retailers to get to our consumers. So, I mean, in a way, it's a big ecosystem yeah. that needs to come back to life and we feel we have a way to help them. 
I'm here with Joe Ukazoglu, the CEO of Deloitte US, which is the sponsor of this podcast. Joe's one of the most thoughtful people I've met on the topics we discuss here every week. Joe, thanks for joining. Alan, pleasure to be with you. Joe, I get a sense from the CEOs that I've been talking with that this pandemic is actually accelerating their digital transformation. Companies that weren't that aggressive before the crisis are being forced now to step up for the sake of their survival. Is that what you're seeing? Alan, we're seeing that across Deloitte's client base. The current circumstances are compressing a multi-year period of change management into a few short weeks. Those organizations that have made the investments in digital transformation are today finding it to be a source of competitive advantage. Clients and customers can see who's doing this well and who's not. And there are multiple elements to this. There's obviously the skill sets of employees, the technology platforms, the leading security protocols. But just as importantly, there is a large element of culture. The comfort level of working collaboratively in a distributed environment, the ability to embed purpose and genuine human connection in a virtualized environment to retain those critically important team dynamics and employee engagement. Joe, great thoughts as always. Wonderful to be with you, Alan. So you you have a big, sprawling company that, that covers the whole world, very different places, very different cultures. And, and you've also done a lot of acquisitions over the years, incorporated new companies. And my sense from talking to you and others is that you manage that with a really well-defined culture that may not be everybody's cup of tea, but is very clearly defined and everybody knows what the rules of the road are. Can you talk about what that is and how that works and how others could learn from it? Yeah, that's a very good point, Alan. In our last few years, 10, 15 years, I've been in the company now for 30 years. In the last 15 years, we've done some big business combinations or acquisitions. And uh, what's key there is that, of course, the numbers have to work. The strategy needs to be sound in justifying such a move. But more than that, I mean, for you to really make two companies function as one after you get everything approved and the closing takes place, you need to have a very clear view on the values and culture of the company. So during signing and closing in every deal, you have like nine nine months, six to nine months, or sometimes even more, 12 months to get all the different antitrust from all the different countries around the world to approve it and all that. During that time between signing and closing, I've traveled with some of my colleagues to meet all my new colleagues in their countries. And we talk about what we call our 10 principles or the dream people culture, which is about the fact that we are the company. The company is not something, an entity. It's a group of people. We are the company. So what we believe in and the values based on which we run the business is key because you're not everywhere. So for you to make sure that the company is aligned and doing things that make sense, you need to have a set of values that people believe in. We try to create an environment where talented people join us and stay and develop themselves and uh, grow as owners. And that's the third piece. We like a company of owners, not a company of executives because owners join companies, Alan, to, to help you make your dream come true. And executives join companies to help their resume grow. But they're not really committed necessarily to what you're trying to do because they're here 
only for the short term. That's why we like owners. They come and join us for the long term. I mean, that sounds great, but how do you do that? How do you make sure the people who work for you uh, act as owners and not as executives? Well, first you talk about it a lot and you give examples. So every time I do a town hall Q&A and you give examples of what it is to be an owner. So how do you think of the group first, the company first, the consumers, our retailers, and then you think about you. That's the main difference. And we try to, in our target system, incentive system, to get people to think this way. So we try to, to nudge people in that direction via the whole ecosystem of how we work within the company. So it's a mindset. You know, some people have it, some people do not have it. Brito, uh, you're still a young man, but I read recently you think after 16 years, maybe it's time to move on? No, this is rumors. You know, this is not the first time <laughs> it, it comes in February that such rumors are there. But, uh, you know, I'm here. feel very good about it. What's the right tenure for a CEO? Well, it depends. I mean, it depends on, you know, on, depends on your profile. depends on uh, if you love what you're doing. depends on your performance. depends on if you're creating a strong bench. depends on lots of things. Again, I've been in the company for 30 years. Uh, we value people that stay with us for the long term because that's the true ownership. Because then, Alan, when you make decisions, you're thinking about the short and the long term. As opposed to yeah, just so, the next two years. So speaking of the long term, I just want to go back for a little bit to something you referred to earlier in the show, which is your focus on an impact on the environment. I assume you believe climate change is a real problem. Well, climate change is real. Uh, we have no doubts. And that's why we have what we call our sustainability targets out there. They're all public and they are fourfold. It's about uh, us having 100% of our purchased electricity coming from renewable sources. And we, we started that three years ago. We're already at 60, coming from zero. When will you hit 100? In 2025 or before that. Again, we're yeah. going faster than we had planned. Second vertical is to have 100% of our products in packaging that's either returnable, what we have today, more than half of our volume, or made from majority recycled content. The third one is about our communities and about water uh, availability and quality. So 100% of our communities in high-stressed areas having measurably improved water availability and quality. All this, of course, being checked by external sources and auditors. And the last one is about the farmers. 100% of our direct farmers, 20,000 of them, are being skilled, connected, and financially empowered. And that's done through programs like Smart Barley, like we mentioned before. Yeah. And do you think business, I mean, the climate problem is such a big problem. Can business really take the lead in, in solving it? No, for sure. I mean, again, you cannot do anything alone. So it takes partnerships, you know, public-private partnerships. But in our company, uh, all these environmental targets we have are all connected to our business. It's about water, packaging, farming, energy. So it's all connected to our business. The better we perform there, not only it's the right thing to do because you have less impact on the environment, but it's also better for our PNL. So it makes sense today. It will make sense 10 years from now. It made sense 10 years ago. Yeah, but there must be moments when there's a trade-off, when the the thing that is going to do the most for your P&L, at least in the short to medium term, is not going to be the thing that's best for the environment or best for the community or best for the water supply. How do you deal with the trade-offs? Well, but that's, that, that's management, right? When you think about it, there are trade-offs every day. In every decision you make, there's always a trade-off. But I think, again, if those things that are environmentally, they make sense. And again, no water, no beer, right? So it's that simple. So I have to take care <laughs> of water because if there's no water, no beer. I have to take care of my farmers 
because if there's no barley, there's no beer. So, I mean, that's the best thing for me. The trade-offs for me on those environmental goals are minimum, if at all existent, because, I mean, they all, they all make sense for my business. I'm not talking about, for example, something totally unrelated like endangered species, which is something very noble, but it's very hard for me to support that at scale because I don't have a business that's connected to that. But yeah. for me to impact water supply, for me to impact farmers, packaging, and energy, because I use it every day, I can do it at scale. Yeah, you know, we're, we're having a bit of a debate right now because it's the 50th anniversary of the famous Milton Friedman uh, story in which he said the social responsibility of business is to make a profit. And so you, you can pick up the paper every day and see different people expressing opinions on stakeholder capitalism versus shareholder capitalism. I mean, how do you think about those debates? I think like anything in life, uh, society has evolved. And what it became clear is that you can do well by doing the right things as well. You know, so if I use less water, it's good for me. You know, if I, if my farmers have better yields and more quality, that benefits me. You know, if my communities are more sound, environmentally speaking, that benefits me. You know, so uh, in, in some countries in Asia, I won't give here the name, but sometimes the pollution is so bad that we have to shut down the whole entire region in terms of manufacturing activity. So again, if pollution is up, my business is down. So I think the connections are becoming much clearer than maybe some years ago. Yeah. Thank you for that. Carlos Brito, uh, congratulations on making the Fortune Change the World list. And thanks for taking some time to be with us on Leadership Next. Well, thank you so much. Have a great day. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala. Written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. 